Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome back to the PodCTL podcast. By the time you're listening to this, Kubernetes 1.8 is available, as well as the session announcements and schedule came out for KubeCon later this year. So there's, if you look through that list, there's, there's a number of uh, pretty fantastic sessions. So, so I definitely recommend uh, checking that out. Also, just want to say thank you to everyone that's been listening, giving us feedback, reviews. If you have a topic you're interested in hearing, you know, reach out to us, Twitter, email, you know, all that stuff's in the show notes. Today, we have have a very interesting guest uh, on here, don't we, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as we've been we've been digging into a lot of things around the basics of Kubernetes, you know, we thought maybe this week we'd jump into a little more, you know, around, okay, I want to get Kubernetes into production. And there's, you know, there's a lot of types of workloads that, you know, maybe aren't web-based, maybe are a little more complicated. And so uh, excited to have Jeremy Eater on the show. Jeremy is very well known around the performance community and just, you know, kicked off a blog about the resource management uh, group that's being kicked off in Kubernetes. So Jeremy, welcome to the show. Yep. Thanks for having me. So why don't we get started there? Well, you know, first off, welcome to the show. Tell folks a little bit about this new working group that you've been part of that you wrote a blog about on uh, on the Kubernetes website and kind of the focus of this new group. Yeah, happy to, happy to. Um, working groups are uh, sort of a new concept in Kubernetes. Uh, if you're familiar with special interest groups, Kubernetes has carved out several of them, networking, scheduling, scalability. Working groups follow the SIG model in terms of meetings, mailing lists, and generally how to participate, but they're different than SIGs in that they're, they're formed to help foster cross-sig collaboration. It signals maturity in the project to me that there's a documented way to approach large efforts with cross-sig scope. So to effect change in the area of resource management, which is definitely project-wide, being that it requires changes on the node, changes in scheduling capabilities, etc., working group turned out to be the the way forward. So the backstory in brief, um, which is a little bit more detail on the blog, but was founded in January of this year and and through the 1.8 uh, release, we've landed several features in the resource management space that are meant to enable some of those workloads, Brian, that you alluded to. We had a chance last week, we talked to uh, to both Derek Carr and, and Clayton Coleman, and they were talking about some of them, they were talking about, uh, you know, some of the modularity that's going to now allow things like GPUs and um, other hardware types that'll be important. But yeah, no, I think it's it's important for, for folks to to get a sense of what's a working group, what's a what's a SIG group. But like you said, more importantly, we're, we're reaching a maturity with Kubernetes where, you know, things aren't so isolated. We're seeing you know, these kind of cross collaborations that, that align to real use cases for uh, for companies. I think it's been organic, sort of an undertone for a while, but having a process in place definitely makes planning a lot easier. So we have ourselves a roadmap that spans at least four, if not five different uh, Kubernetes releases into the future. And as you get further out, things get less and less certain. But at least in the in the 1.8 release, we're finally able to execute uh, and deliver. You, know, you mentioned GPUs earlier. What happened there was we've had quote-unquote GPU in alpha support level since 1.3 Kubernetes. The way it was implemented is it wasn't in a way that would ever necessarily graduate from alpha. We always kind of knew we needed to do it the right way. And so for that to be done, we took a step back and decided to do it generically in, in a device plug-in model that would support more than just GPUs. So we have other things in scope, such as uh, kernel bypass, network adapters, InfiniBand. Certain cloud providers are selling FPGAs. We want to be able to deal with those and GPUs. So we have prototypes both of kernel bypass networking and GPUs right now that are implemented through the device plug-in model. 
once you have that, you start getting into requirements around uh, how do I make that run well? And that generally means you have to take into account some of the physical design of the of the of the server that it's installed in. These are techniques we've used for decades and decades in computing to optimize for large systems where you have penalties for crossing the NUMA boundaries of a single socket. So we've implemented, or Intel uh, and Red Hat have implemented together uh, CPU pinning strategies for for Kubernetes that allows us to handle that sort of thing. And then finally, we introduced Derek himself, actually, I believe, uh, implemented most of the huge pages support in Kubernetes 1.8, which allows us to support large memory requirements for example, for Java or DPDK. Very cool. I think the uh, thing that makes this interesting to me is, you know, the, the basic container capabilities, you know, passing devices through to a container isn't isn't that big of a deal, um, you know, on a, on a one-to-one basis. Uh, once you start getting into, well, I have a thousand nodes, how am I making sure I'm scheduling these just like I'm scheduling any any other resource? What about figuring out how this works from a from a benchmarking perspective and you know and as you bring in these new device types and Yeah, I, I can't agree with you more, Tyler. The, before I get into the benchmarking, I wanted to just mention that we had to tackle this in pieces. And so the scheduling stuff is not yet in. The way that you'd land a pod on a node with a GP right now is with a label. And that's a bit of a I don't want to say hack because it works fine, but it's it's not what we ultimately want. Um, we want nodes to identify themselves as having GPUs rather than you having to label them manually. So we'll get, these are some of the things we have on our roadmap to uh, flesh out the user experience. But from the benchmarking side, yeah, we can't really approach top performance as of now um, with the, with the, features that were in Cube as of, you know, 1.7 or something like that. We want to. We think, so taking a step back, last couple of years, I've spent kind of traveling around and, and talking with the, the same customer base who's got these requirements. And what they've told me is that, Jeremy, we, we, we had to skip the whole virtualization generation because we just can't, we can't figure out a way to get what we need out of performance wise out of out of virtualization and so we're we're stuck with the inflexible kind of we've done our best to automate with bare metal etc and some people are network booting and they've got very creative what they want from us and as the kubernetes community is to deliver on the promise of better performance that we expect from containers with the flexibility and time to market that you might get out of a, a DevOps workflow. And what are some of those, you know, what, what are some of those things they, they say are sort of stuck? Is that is that high performance computing? Is that things like Hadoop that you tend to think about as being kind of a bare metal workload or scientific type of workload? You know, do, do you have a kind of a broad sense of what those types of workloads look like? Yeah, it, it generally anything that has to do with IO on or off the system, whether it's network or disk, tends to be tends to have a fair amount of overhead in virtualization. And compute bound workloads, maybe not so much, but even there, there's a, a handful of percent overhead and these folks are not interested in taking that sort of thing. So from a broad workload perspective, anything the financial services guys are doing on capital markets, uh, anything telecom is doing in uh, call routing or uh, text message routing sort of things, Believe it or not, a text message, you know, for you or me, it takes a couple of seconds to come through, but they're, they're counting milliseconds on the other side, on their end, for sure. So those type of workloads come into play. And then, of course, uh, the animation studios are, are super interested in, in, in every last bit of performance. You, you'd mentioned HPC earlier. Chemistry and molecular modeling comes up quite a bit. As you guys are thinking about this from a you know working group perspective, obviously some of these things are going to be kernel level. You talked about you know there's there's some work going on in the kernel to do this. Some of it's going to be scheduling level, like you said, you know identifying resources, being able to map them and so forth. So forth. then some of them may end up being application specific. You know, we're, we're seeing certain work that happens, like for example, say say Spark happening on Kubernetes and kind of having some awareness of 
of this sort of advanced scheduling. How does the group think about, you know, what should be kernel level versus network and storage versus scheduling versus, uh, you know, versus application? I would say that the majority of our work so far has involved bubbling up existing capabilities. So we haven't gone necessarily down into the kernel level at this point. There, there are certain things we, we've needed or wanted to do with C groups V2 or in the future uh, that may that may require some kernel changes or, or Kubernetes changes. Quite honestly, um, one thing I forgot to mention is that the way that the the user experience here is is critical. There's one of the key parts about delivering a winning benchmark is that you have to pull out all the stops and get very and it gets very complicated very quickly. We do not want that experience in Kubernetes. We want the system to be largely self-tuning, largely self-healing, and at the same time meet the application's requirements. So we are absolutely application level focused and Kubernetes and the kernel exist to facilitate the applications. So it's kind of easy if you think about it from that perspective where the fixes need to go. We, uh, between Tim Hawken and uh, Derek, I heard the message loud and clear <laughs> a year ago that we need to rally around the quality of service tiers in Kubernetes to make it consumable from an app from a user standpoint. So the quality of service tiers in, in Kubernetes are, there's three of them basically, a guaranteed best effort and a burstable. And the idea, at least for these workloads, is most of them would fit into the guaranteed tier, and that tier gets you certain either capabilities or, or service, service level assurances that you wouldn't get in some of the other tiers. And the idea is for an application developer to select from that small menu of, of tiers, and suddenly their application, you know, Kubernetes knows what to do with that pod and how to schedule it in a fair way that it has the resources that it needs. How do you go about, you know, as you're as you're putting these capabilities in and, and exposing them, and you said doing the doing the the testing and the performance benchmarking. How do you, you know, when we're talking about testing features like scheduling in Kubernetes or or even um, you know, labels and things like that, right? You can we can do that on our laptop. It's pretty easy testing. Uh, type stuff. But when you're talking about very specialized hardware testing, uh, requires specialized, you know, it requires that, you know, if you're going to test uh, InfiniBand, you're going to need some servers with some InfiniBand. How how are you playing on, you know, testing these things? Are some of these hardware companies offering labs or or kind of what's the plan around that? Yeah, th- you're, you're absolutely right. You know, most of the features we've done thus far have been available in the public cloud, including GPUs and FPGAs. FP- at least Amazon sells FPGAs. Everybody sells GPUs at this point. InfiniBand, nobody offers at the moment. Uh, qualified that may require commitment from some of the folks implementing it to handle the CI for that. There's other features that that's kind of the only one that we've come across thus far that that will require some specialized hardware uh, to, to guarantee it from like an E2E test standpoint. The rest of them, I feel like we can do uh, with the existing hardware we have now. Now, whether or not we can afford to do it on every PR, I don't know. There, there, there will likely have to be some tiering of this just because the instances tend to be either what I would call it a hot commodity or a little bit more expensive than the other instances. So there's some tweaking and fine tuning there. I can describe to you how we test them internally, uh, although it doesn't. it's not necessarily in the Kubernetes CI. Our team, the performance and scale team at, at Red Hat, we do our large first tests in a lab that we have here in Raleigh. We used the CNCF lab for a while as well. Uh, at this point, we're focusing more on the internal labs and we're doing some testing there. You know, let, let's suppose, obviously, because the community is open, let's suppose 
uh, I don't know, one of the research facilities, you know, uh, you know, financial services company, whoever said, hey, you know, we'd like to kind of get involved with this or we'd like to see how some of these things work. Like, what's the what do you expect the interaction to be between the working group and you know some of these large companies that that have these environments that kind of not just want to say, hey, can you guys go test this stuff for me? But want to say, hey, how do we how do we engage and get involved? Is, are you seeing that happen already or do you expect that to, to start happening? We, we're seeing it uh, in drips and drabs as the as you know, and this blog that I wrote is meant to socialize it even further. We've participated so far with a bunch of vendors, and there have been some participants here and there. eBay is one example that we met with at the Resource Management Working Group kickoff meeting uh, earlier this year. There are several other companies that have expressed interest. Um, not all of them are necessarily ready to come forward in a public way about it yet, but. We're encouraging everybody to come to those public meetings, uh, which are on Wednesdays, and uh, there's a contact us page up on GitHub in the Kubernetes community GitHub that'll uh, show you where to get how to reach us from a Slack mailing list or uh, the weekly meeting standpoint. Uh, you know, as you talk to the, these companies and you're trying to engage them more and more, uh, I think you mentioned at the be- the beginning that you know what's what kept them out of virtualization uh, and the things they're looking for now in Kubernetes. Do you do you feel like they're they're starting to deploy uh, some of these higher performance applications on Kubernetes? Are they they still holding back and looking for they need they need a few more features or uh, optimizations before they're ready to go there well I, I think most folks are at a different they're they're at a varying point of proof of concepts and uh, I, I would say that we're barely starting to deliver the the kind of basic plumbing that these folks need so I would expect the coming six months to be more fruitful in that area I know that most of them do have proof of concepts already and they're experimenting with ways to get the performance that they need in in ways that are not necessarily requiring like changes to the platform. So for example, they could potentially do all of their locality discovery and uh, pinning inside the application. And some of them do that. Some of them do that already. Uh, so, and so those folks are further along than the ones who are dependent or who want to remain dependent on the capabilities of the, uh, of the platform itself. I do believe some of them are holding back for, to see where, see how this all play, plays out, but we're working with uh, some of the more forward-thinking companies to try and uh, tease out the, le- the second-level requirements that they have. You know, we've gone through the first large swath. In fact, that's that's how these three that we did already came to be chosen as the first three to tackle. Was they had the widest level, widest possible impact, so that we could help the most use cases as we could. I think over time, those second-level requirements will be getting more and more specialized, and those are the ones that you know may actually enable folks to move to prod. So, if somebody is you know kind of around Kubernetes. This group is obviously sort of fairly brand new, but we get, we do get a lot of questions that are that are kind of common all the time. Things like you know how many how many pods can I run on a on a given size server? How far apart can I put my masters in terms of uh, you know latency and, and delay? And they kind of think about those as as performance characteristics, design characteristics. Are those things that that this working group would would handle, or are those you know some of those best practices kind of coming out of the existing groups? Like how how would somebody who who's planning to deploy say Kubernetes and, and ask is asking those types of questions? Like where's the best place to be getting answers for that type of stuff? So far, this working group hasn't touched on those topics. Generally, those will come out of the scalability working group. Our team participates lightly there as well. Red Hat does. 
and we also publish documentation on scaling and performance. So uh, there's there's plenty of existing best practices there. The challenge with those is that it all depends on the workload. Sure. So we can we can give best practices, but quite honestly, it doesn't matter until the rubber meets the road. So the be- the, the approach that we've taken is to try and publish formulas which you can work backwards from after you fill in the variables with your applications requirements. Yeah, and I, I know you've done like you mentioned, um, you know, CNCF previously had a about a thousand two thousand node lab that I know is going through some changes. You you previously had published uh, a couple of very very large tests that you had done thousand node two thousand node. What have you learned over the last you know couple of years in terms of kind of some of the best practices people might take for you know how to think about designing and scaling Kubernetes environments? So one of the key things that we've learned is that um, we we benefit greatly from copy on write VM storage. Uh, we also have been able to collapse the masters and etcd onto a single system. So, I, and the reason behind that is important to understand is that over the last year, I would say since since the 1.3 or 1.4 release, the the actual CPU and memory requirements and network requirements for Kubernetes have dropped significantly, and that's all due to work that CoreOS and Google and Red Hat have all worked together on, uh, specifically around etcd, which I incidentally also wrote up a blog when when we converted at openshift.com over to SCD3 uh, about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, we saw a, a tremendous drop in resource requirements. And that's the type of thing that took, you know, six months to a year to actually do in the background before, you know, we actually realized it in a, in a production scenario. So what that drop in requirements means is that the core of Kubernetes, we, we're calling it the core. It's not actually a, it's not a real term. It's, it's a Jeremy term. <laughs> Which it involves like the masters, etcd, and any of the other shared services that are, deliver service to the to the pods, like logging and metrics, etc. Those have all reduced their resource requirements. So the so the core footprint has dropped. Maybe I don't want to say in half, but at least by maybe thirty or forty percent. And that's great. It means we can run those two thousand node environments with less. Over, call it overhead to, to provide the services to those pods. Things we've learned coming out of, uh, an additional thing we've learned is that uh, you know we, we don't necessarily have to have gigantic watch caches on every object in Kubernetes. Uh, something over the last two weeks, I think, that occurred upstream is that we we're actually disabling the watch caches for most objects. Uh, and what that does is it, it adds potentially a small amount of latency to new requests um, because they need to be served from disk. But it also drops the memory requirements for etcd significantly. And we found that that being that was a reasonable trade-off listen tyler you know i know, I know we keep saying over and over again um you know as, as we talk about different stuff that you know we see people talking more about monitoring and managing things in production uh, obviously seeing this happen uh, as a as a working group you know kind of adds to that idea of of maturity and and so forth i you know any last thoughts around you know what you're seeing in terms of of performance or people having expectations of performance and uh, and scalability for kubernetes yeah i, th- I think it um you know that because it's it's a different model so i think there's kind of two groups coming from two different angles uh, as Jeremy mentioned earlier, the the we stayed on bare metal folks, right? That are they're looking for every uh, microsecond, millisecond. Um, they see, you know, the thing that they've been sitting on the sidelines, missing out the flexibility and ease of use of of virtualization uh, that they had to kind of skip. That they they're getting, you know, possibility the possibility to get in there now with that. Um, and I think what's interesting to see the other side, the people that you know could do virtualization and and went that route, and now they're seeing 
the scalability and kind of efficiencies of containers. Uh, I mean, there wasn't, I, I think, what was it, uh, early this year, um, there was a survey of, of AWS customers that moved from from using EC2 to Kubernetes on EC2, and the, the overall kind of number of workloads dropped and, and their overall costs dropped because they just got mo- way more efficient uh, using containers. So I think it's it's interesting to see, you know, both groups coming together, um, you know, the, the traditional virtualization folks getting now, you know, better efficiency uh, and keeping the, the manageability they like and then seeing these high performance teams able to get that that stuff they were missing out on. No, it's definitely, definitely very cool that, uh, you know, Kubernetes continues to kind of expand the workloads that it can take on. And, and like we said, you know, it's, it's really kind of becoming the de facto standard so it it has to figure out ways that um, you know people are going to be able to do things like uh, you know online trading serving ads like Jeremy said delivering text messages kind of all the day-to-day stuff that people um, are seeing in their lives and uh, and then a lot of the really cool behind the scenes uh, you know animation and science and other stuff that's going on Jeremy what's the you know what's the best way to either kind of keep up with what's going on in the resource group uh, you know if people want to put some on their calendar for week to week they might want to listen to like what's the what's the way to you know maybe watch from the fringe and then eventually get engaged honestly the best thing to do is attend our meetings or or join the slack channel um, we have a mailing list got a reasonable amount of volume too I think in the show notes Brian uh, will will add a, a link to our contact us page where where people can get all of that information. Okay, very cool. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in there. And uh, you know, we've got some other things. We've got the link to your blog, um, some of the other work that you've done. Oh, I forgot to ask one other thing. You, at least in some of the previous work around, you know, some of the thousand node, two thousand node um, deployments for for Kubernetes and, and OpenShift and so forth. You were very meticulous in terms of laying out um, your methodology. A lot of that. Do we expect the? Would I expect the same sort of kind of transparency and, and methodology to be documented or put out on GitHub? Um, you know, as you guys are doing your work. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we're we're as open as it gets on our team. We're trying to put everything we possibly can out into the community, um, whether that's documentation, proper documentation, blogs, meetups, etc. We're we're as forthcoming as we possibly can. You know, we're, I'm hopefully the the driving spirit behind a lot of this, or I try to be. Uh, but it really is a, a multi vendor effort. There's been a ton of contributions from all across, uh, from many vendors. So, and it's been it's been quite a ride and a great experience. Well, listen, uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for the time this morning. And uh, folks, you know, like we mentioned, uh, you know, definitely go, to, go take a look at, at the work that the community is doing now around performance, these new applications, especially if it uh, if it applies to you. Um, definitely go take a look at what uh, just got announced for KubeCon and for on the scheduling and so forth. A lot of really interesting sessions out there. And uh, as Tyler mentioned at the beginning, thanks to everybody who's been giving us feedback. We've been getting some great questions in the email. Uh, we've been getting some reviews and ratings on, uh, on iTunes and other things. So uh, keep telling a friend, keep listening. And- And uh, we will talk to you next week.